All right, if you would, please turn to the book of James in your New Testaments. James. We'll be in James 2. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your help as a teacher to teach. And therefore, people learn, people grasp, people understand what we're going to do here this morning. And more than that, Holy Father, cause our hearts to love what our minds see, to delight all the more in our Jesus, in His cross, as we sung this morning. To the glory of His name. Amen. This is week 15 in our series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. So over the last two weeks, as we've entered the Abrahamic narrative in Genesis, we have seen that Abraham, and thus we, are justified, or saved, forgiven of our sins, declared righteous by God, though we're sinners. That happens by faith alone. Last week, we then said, what is the essence of that faith. In other words, before it even does anything, what it, what's going on in the heart? And at the heart of that saving faith is desiring God and all that He says. Loving and believing His promises. And at the end of the sermon last week, and we saw in the text that when that faith goes outward, it, it does, that faith obeys, and it, and it obeys by even leaving its homeland and wandering in a foreign country that God tells him to go to. Or, later down the line, it even puts his son on an altar ready to sacrifice him. And so, the question for this morning then is how, how does that happen? How is it that faith, which is at its core, invisible, internal, in here in a heart, how is that related to outward obedience to God's revealed Word, His commands? Summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. And to get at that question, what I want to do is to bring up the apparent contradiction. Listen carefully, I didn't say contradiction. I said the apparent contradiction on the surface between James and Paul. So I'm going to begin by reading James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. 
You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, briefly, Paul says in Romans 3, verses 27 to 28, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And there's the apparent contradiction. James says Abraham was justified by works. Paul says a person is justified by faith apart from works. Both of them are personally called by the resurrected Lord Jesus as apostles. Both James and Paul are carried along by the Holy Spirit in what they are writing. Both are stating the truth. Both are coherent in their own context as they write. And so briefly before we get it, I just want to, I want to set a groundwork as we're going to attack this. The meaning of words, and this is in your marriage, in the workplace, every day, someone writing, political, enemies arguing, words, which for meaning is about all we really have, words get their meaning in all those contexts, including when James is writing, or Paul is writing, from the author, the way the author is using the words and the terms. It's called context. And therefore, as we listen to somebody orally or read their book or read the Bible, interpretation at its core is to seek to understand the intended meaning of the author of those words. And words, by their very nature, they can be ambiguous depending on how the author uses them well or not. Because words, you open up a dictionary, you get all those words, let them float around in the air, 
there's not much meaning to them. That's why when you look at a word, look at there's eight choices for this word. Right, because people use that same word in eight different ways. And it's the context that tells you. And so this becomes a problem, especially when you understand, or a problem that is just a reality that we must understand, that there are words that, five words right here, totally different words, mean and can mean the exact same thing. On the other hand, you can have one word that can have a number of different meanings. I don't know if this word's in vogue this way anymore, but my wife is a fox. What do I mean? I mean do I mean that little animal, furry, with a tail? Well, I think that's pretty, that's pretty obvious. But do I mean the way Jesus used it concerning Herod when he called him a fox? Cunning. Duplicitous. It's a possibility. But it's not the way I meant it there. I meant it in a, in a totally different way than those two meanings. Pretty woman. See, that's how words work. Rock. That could mean an engagement ring. Look at that rock on there. It can mean a little stone that a kid will skip on water. It can mean a type of music. It can even be a verb, rock, the chair, R-O-C-K. In the Greek New Testament, there's a word that is zelos. That's the word. And that word in the New Testament has the meaning, at times, of jealousy in a bad sense. Same word, zelos, has the meaning in other contexts of zeal. Like, zeal for the Lord, in a good sense. So, if someone stands up and says, we should get rid of all zealous in our lives, don't say yes and agree with him or disagree. Until you know, sir, how do you mean zealous? Do you mean zeal? Like, I'm zealous to go to work and support my family? You want me to get rid of that? Or, or do you mean jealousy in a sinful, hurtful kind of way? If, do you mean that? So, the same words can have different meanings. and Different words can have the same meaning. Okay, I just, that's it. I just wanted to do that to set the stage for the apparent contradiction between Paul and James on the crucial doctrine of salvation. Eternally, justification by faith. Two weeks ago, I made it clear and made the case that Abraham and we are justified by faith alone apart from any works. They are not the cause of God justifying us. And I went to Romans 4. And right before that, in chapter 3, verse 28, Paul writes, We hold that a person is justified 
That means God forgiving your sins and declaring that person to be righteous. Not because they are righteous in and of themselves, but because of his son's righteousness imputed to him. And God justifies the person by their faith alone, apart from works of the law. And then chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, And to the one who does not work, but instead believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so God's verdict of not guilty, declared perfectly righteous, as if you lived your entire life sinlessly and positively glorifying me, as his son did. That happens by our faith in him alone. Nothing else added. That was a couple weeks ago. Then this morning, we come to read what James says. And he says in chapter 2, verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. In verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So James not only says that a person is justified by works, he makes it clear in, with words that he denies that a person is justified by faith. Alone. Now, at least, in other words, with the words that he chooses to use. On the surface, in isolation, from any context, they seem to mean something contradictory to Paul. So what's going on? We pose the question first this way. As we read the entire letter of James, and you read chapter 2, is James's intention, is his purpose to refute the doctrine of Paul, that justification is granted by a person's faith alone? Is that what he's doing? Or, I mean, if he's doing that, we have a huge problem as Christians because the New Testament is contradictory. Or on the other hand, is James's purpose to refute a misinterpretation of and an abuse of Paul's clear doctrine of justification by faith? And he's bringing a corrective to it. What I'm going to show, that's exactly James's intention. That's what he's driving at. Not only that, Paul himself did the same thing throughout his ministry. Paul was very aware during his lifetime that there are always 
persons who would twist the gospel Jesus gave to him of justification by faith alone to Jew or Gentile, that they would twist that and distort it and cause it to come out in a way that is utterly unbiblical and untrue and dangerous. In other words, there were people saying about Paul and his teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and justification by faith. Paul teaches that, look at that, God justifies ungodly people by their faith alone. Without cleaning up their life here or without doing a bunch of religious activities. And Paul claims that in God doing that, God is magnifying His own grace because the greater sinner they are, the more grace abounds and God's glory abounds through it. And so, let's, let's go with Paul's doctrine. Let's believe in Jesus and sin all the more. Because Paul says, the more we sin, the more God's grace abounds. That's what they're saying. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 8. And why not do evil so that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. And their condemnation is just. Slanderously means they're lying. We don't teach that. We don't teach that when a person comes to saving faith, then the more they sin, the more God's glorified in their life. It's a lie. So Paul knows everywhere he goes, he's being slandered on this issue. And, and Paul does teach in Romans 5.20, and he means this. Historically, looking at redemptive history, he says... Now, we're going to get there in a few weeks. Moses comes. Now the law came in for this purpose. In order that sins or the trespass would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. True. Historically. And Paul knows that there are those saying, well then, if grace abounds or sin increases, what shall we say to that, Paul? Live and let live. Whatever feels good, do it. And that's why Paul comes to chapter 6 of Romans and opens it up like this. What shall we say then to this glorious, free, utterly merciful gospel? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? That's what some people back then were saying. And 
people today believe. And so Paul starts to unfold in Romans 6 and 7. This is the power of grace working. God forbid, no, we don't continue in unabated sinfulness, unrepented sinful life. We're on a different track because of new birth and because of what faith is. But not only there in Romans, throughout Paul's letters, he's constantly bringing a corrective to that superficial distortion of the teaching of justification by faith alone. He answers it in almost every letter he writes. For instance, this is what he says in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 13. Galatians, all these churches in the region of Galatia, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And as Paul would say in Galatians, love fulfills the commands. And he makes crystal clear in Romans, love fulfills the Ten Commandments. Love doesn't commit adultery with someone's spouse. Love doesn't murder, it doesn't steal, it doesn't bear false witness. That's not what love does. So love obeys this faith and this freedom that he's called to. It obeys God's moral law. It's true. We have a wonderful freedom in Jesus Christ. We are absolutely freed, not only from ceremonial commands, but moral commands as the means and cause of salvation. Free! You were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But serve one another. Okay, okay. Now here's the question then. But Paul then, he exhorts obedience. He exhorts love one another. Which fulfills the moral law. It's crucial. How does he mean that? Does he mean... You've come to faith. You're alive and born again. You love Jesus. You realize you did nothing other than believe. And you even realize that that was His work. And you're justified once and for all. There's nothing that you can do that can get you in good standing with God any more than you are if you're already justified. Does He mean now, love one another. Now, here's faith. That's done. You're justified. Now, let's take this other thing called obedience, called loving one another, and put it on top of faith and add that onto it and live your life. Is that what Paul means. In other words, is he saying, come to faith, Galatians. You got a good start through justification by faith alone. Okay, good. Now, there's another way to live now. 
There's another way, besides faith, to do now in your life as a Christian what you ought to do. You started with faith. You're justified. Put that in the box. Now, go on and add to faith something else called works. Is that his teaching? It's crucial. Because if we think that is the Christian life, we are swimming in the pool of what Paul calls legalism. And it's sinful. Listen to how Paul feels about that way of construing the Christian life. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, he says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, which must mean by faith in the context also, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? So Paul's answer is faith. The faith you began the Christian life with is the same faith you are to live by day after day after day until you're dead. I have been crucified with Christ, he says. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith. And him who loved me gave himself up. For me. So don't add works to faith. The equation of the Christian life is not faith and then the addition symbol plus works. A crucial text to see what Paul is driving at is Galatians chapter 5. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means a hill of beans. Well, uh, that was... Counts, including justification, including future salvation, including... It counts for nothing. It doesn't count for anything. But, and now it's an elliptical, you're supposed to add in, what does count for everything is faith. Working through love. Now, working is a participle, modifying the faith. It's not faith plus working. It's faith which, in the middle voice, works itself out in love meaning loving others. So when Paul dealt with the abuse of his doctrine of justification by faith, he said, 
It's not adding works. What is it? It's faith today, tomorrow, and the future. The only thing that counts at the very initial beginning of your Christian life and for the next 73 years is faith. Faith working itself out through loving others. That's what counts. He says the thing that counts grammatically is clear. It is faith. It's not the working itself out through love. It is faith defined as that kind of faith which does work itself out through love. It's not faith plus works. I'm, are you nitpicking, Joe? Yes. Absolutely I am. I don't know how to be faithful to Scripture without nitpicking on crucial issues like this. What counts with God, according to Paul, is the kind of faith that by its nature you're going this way and not the way it used to go. New birth does that. New birth creates faith. Faith is a powerful dynamic. It takes sinners who are still sinners and thus continually repent onto a different direction. That by its nature is popping up the fruits of loving others. The faith, that's why we just said that forget about what it does outwardly like loving others. That's what we did last week. At the core, that thing that's soon as it springs to life by the Holy Spirit, the person is justified immediately and forever. Period. End of issue. Before they do anything. Even fruits from that faith are not the cause of justification. But from that, the loving others, the obedience to God in the life, in a pattern, comes forth only to show that inside that person, it shows the fact and the reality and the, the living dynamic that saving faith is in him or her. All right. That's, that's Paul. I hope you're following me to that point. Okay. That's what I think James is doing. Does it differently? Trust me. I've been working in deductive Bible study with people through James. He's frustrating at times. He's not Paul. He seems to be sloppy even sometimes. Can I say that? But that's what he's doing. James is saying, this kind of faith in Jesus that is loveless, today, tomorrow, next month, next, that kind of faith is not genuine, saving faith. 
That's James' point. He's saying anybody who comes along and says, we're justified by faith alone. And so, we don't have to be loving persons towards others or when we are unloving, repent of it and have a change of heart and change of action. We don't have to live that way. That's legalism. James is saying that person is dead wrong. So is Paul. That's what Paul was saying in Galatians, right? Five. You, you think that? You're gonna, and you're going to live according to the way you think? You're going to live according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit? Go on. And if you do that, we don't mean sinlessly. There is no such a person. Paul's talking about an attitude and a pattern of life that gives evidence of what's in the heart. You live according to the flesh. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because you will become unjustified? No! But because you never were. Because you're only justified if you have faith. And the faith you had was not the faith the Bible's talking about. That's Paul's point. That's James's point. So as we go to James, this is where, as I opened up, we've got to watch very carefully for words. And the question is, what does James mean by the words he uses? We need to come to terms with James in his context. Even when his words seem to contradict Paul. The question is, is James's meaning contradictory to Paul? So James's concern in chapter 2 is with counterfeit faith. The kind of faith that doesn't produce a changed life. It doesn't produce love. James is saying that faith cannot justify anybody. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 14, James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone, here's a key, says with a mouth, I have faith but does not have works, can that kind of faith, okay, I added kind of, but isn't that what he means? Can that faith save him? That's his concern. That that so-called faith, according to James, is not genuine faith, genuine saving faith. Now, when James says, if it has no works, what kind of works is he talking about in the context? He's talking about the same kind that Paul talked about. Faith working itself out through loving others. Look at verses 15 to 16. Here's his context. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. 
without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? That's the works he's talking about. So James's concern is that people have real saving faith, not a counterfeit, fake, non-saving kind of belief system. And the difference is that real faith produces loving behavior. And so in the context here, James has three ways. I do that. Anyone mocks me. Three. I can't do that. I'm really weird. James has three ways of describing this counterfeit faith. He calls it dead faith. Demon faith in useless faith. In verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead faith. It's not the, the living thing that the gospel's talking about inside of a person. In verse 19, he says, You believe? You believe that God is one God? You're, you're a monotheist. Got your doctrine right there? Great! Demons also believe that. And they shudder at the reality of it. So he says there's a kind of faith that can believe true orthodox doctrine. Demons believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You do know that. But they're not saved by that kind of faith. They believe it and shudder. And persons, humans, can believe that and not have saving faith. It's a demon kind of faith. It has no fruit that points back to its real. Thirdly, in verse 20, he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? It's a useless, an ineffective, an empty, a vain faith. So there's three ways that James talks about counterfeit faith. A faith that does not save. That's his context. And it is exactly something that the Apostle Paul would agree with. It's a dead faith, a demon faith. It's a useless faith. It is a faith that has no vital life, different desires that work itself out in loving others. Okay, now, both Paul <coughs> and James go to the Genesis narrative of Abraham, all right, in order to make their cases. So just, just briefly for a minute, a timeline. Remember, God encounters Abraham in Genesis 12. Leave and go where I tell you and I'll bless you. Abraham obeyed. That was faith. And if you, you say, well, I don't know, it doesn't say the word faith there. Hebrews chapter 11 does. He came to faith. And I will contend 
He was justified. Chapter 12. He journeys and sojourns to the land for 10 years. 10 years now. Later. And that's when we come to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. First, God says, look at the stars, count them if you can, Abraham. So shall your physical descendants be through Sarah. And then the text says, and this is the only time in the Genesis narrative where this is said, and Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Wait a minute. Wasn't he justified back in chapter 12, 10 years earlier? My answer is yes, absolutely. Well, then you move forward 26 years after his initial faith. In chapter 22, God says, take Isaac, go to Mount Moriah, sacrifice him. And he did. There's the Genesis narrative. It's no problem to say, see Abraham, he's a man of faith in chapter 15. Or you could even insert that in chapter 22 again. See, Abraham believed God and it's reckoned to him as righteousness. See his fruit there? That's why it's reckoned to him. Even though he was justified once and for all back in chapter 12, the beginning. So now, got that. James then takes the narrative, but he only uses two of those three examples. He doesn't use the chapter 12. He, he, he goes to chapter 15, and then he goes to chapter 22. All right? In chapter 15, he quotes it. I'm sorry. Yeah, 15, 6. He quotes it in James chapter 2, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Ten years after his initial faith. James quotes it. Just pause for a moment. Paul does the same thing in Romans 4. In Romans 4, verses 2 to 3, Paul says, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture, that is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, say? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so, Paul says, faith, not works, is what was reckoned righteousness. Back to James. After quoting Genesis 15, 6, James flips forward in Genesis to what we call chapter 22, and he notices in chapter 22, another 16 years down the road, God tested Abraham by commanding him to take his son his only son, the heir of the promise, and to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. What was God testing? His faith. 
bringing it forth, letting it be seen. What's God looking for as he tests his faith? The answer is obedience to his command. Take Isaac, trust me on this, and sacrifice him. So what do you want to call it obedience? Or James calls it works, which would show that Abraham's faith in God was not a dead faith, a demon faith, or a useless faith. It was a real saving faith. The issue for James, when he refers to Abraham's obedience in offering Isaac, the issue for him is not Abraham's first initial act of faith that justified Abraham. James clearly understood that he's justified long before that. The issue is the test. Was Abraham's faith the living, true kind of faith that responds to God with obedience? Or as Paul would call that, like in Romans 1, the obedience of faith. Is that what's in Abraham? Or is it a dead kind of faith that has no real effect on life that James knows there's many people in the church who that's who they are. And they're proving it by their lives. And so that's why James says now in verses 21 and 22, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active. It acts along with his works of obedience to God and offering up Isaac. And faith was completed by his works. So when, when James says Abraham was justified by works. He has a meaning in mind that is different from Paul when Paul denies that any works have anything to do with justifying you. James is answering the question, does Abraham's justification in, in any way as his life goes on and eternity is going to come and there's a resurrection coming one day, and he'll hear it declared publicly at the judgment seat. Righteous, justified. Does, does Abraham's justification in any way have to do with works as a necessary evidence of true saving faith? James's answer is yes. And so is Paul's, if you ask the question that way. Galatians 5, 6. 
Circumcision or uncircumcision mean a hill of beans, but what does mean everything, including final salvation, is a faith that works itself out in love. But if you ask James and Paul, okay, guys, how is it that we who are all so sinful and born into sin and we just have track records of acts of sin throughout our lives up to eight years old when you get saved or 80 or whatever that is. How does an ungodly person get right with God legally where He is on your side. You're a friend of God. He is your Father. The wrath of God is removed from you. You are declared by Him, according to the New Testament and the Old Testament, declared righteous before Him. How does an ungodly person get right with God and receive that glorious gift of justification? Both of them answer the question the same way. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed. Believed is the verb form of the noun faith in English and in Greek. Pistis is the noun and pistuo the verb. To believe. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But if you ask Paul and you ask James, well, does justification... As an ongoing, which you're going to, you should be assured of it now, it'll be declared in the future, but does justification as an ongoing right standing before God depend upon works of obedience, of love? Well, Paul can answer different ways, but he might answer something like this. Again, he's going to ask you a question first. He would say, well, if you mean by works things that we do that deserve, earn justification or salvation, or even those things that we do, the cause it, if you mean it that way in order to get justified, then Paul will say, absolutely not. No. And that's what he argues for. That's the question he's dealing with in Romans 4 when he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. But as what is owed him to the one who does not work but believes, believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so you say to James, how about you, James? Our works are the what's happening in our lives since coming to Faith in Jesus, are they in any way have a part to do with final glorification one day? James would say, yes, if by works you mean the fruit and you mean the the evidence of saving faith 
You know, like Abraham's obedience in going to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son Isaac. If that's what you mean, then yes. And then Paul would sit there and say, oh, I agree with James. I mean, the way he defined the terms that way, totally agree. And James would look, you know what, and the way Paul defined it, you know, his way, absolutely on his page with him too. I mean, you're grasping that? So when Paul renounces justification by works, he's coming against the view that anything that we do along with faith is credited to us as righteousness. No. No. Not even the evidence of faith which produces itself in obedience, that is not the cause of your justification. It's too late because you've already been justified before that was possible. Because faith sprung alive that produced that. Only faith in that sense, therefore, is what obtains the verdict, not guilty declared perfectly righteous to every Christian at their very first spark of saving faith. In that sense, works of any kind are not acceptable as the cause of justification. That's Paul. But when James then affirms and says that with these words, we are justified by works. He's not talking about the same thing. He means that works are absolutely necessary in the ongoing life of a Christian that confirm and prove the reality of the faith which justifies. That's what he's saying. For Paul, justification by works, the, the one that he rejects, it means trying to get in right standing with God by doing X, Y, and Z, whether it's ceremonial or even moral. And he rejects it appropriately. For James, when he affirms justification by works, he means the faith which justifies as a faith that is so alive you can see that fire burning inside the heart by different kinds of flickers and change of life and the way the person is moving and repenting and growing. The great, yeah, he's great. He was a great preacher. Cigar smoking. Preacher of... The 1800s, Charles Haddon Spurgeon in London put it this way. We believe that men are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith which is alone. They are saved by faith without works, but not by a faith which is without works. And so, in other words, Paul teaches in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, that we are justified by faith alone. And he means the only thing that unites us 
to Christ for righteousness, for justification, is that faith that I believe, I see it, I depend on you, the cross, you are everything to me. It's done. When James says in James chapter 2, verse 24, that we are not justified by faith alone, he means that the faith by which a person is justified does not remain alone. The faith that saves is what unites us to Christ. That faith is not a gimmick like joining a Kiwanis club. Made my little confession and vow. It's not what it is. It's a powerful move of God the Holy Spirit who mercifully and for eternity has just changed that sinner's existence and life. And it bears the fruit of it. It can't help it. And so as the believer who has come to saving faith moves down the road of life, it's giving out evidences in the way that it walks by the Spirit in battling against the flesh innately within their sinful nature that makes them different than the unregenerate. The same faith by which we were justified once and for all is the same faith today. Oh, Jesus, I need you. Let me just uh, quickly, I, I'm, I am, I promise I'm closing in 60 to 80 seconds. I hope... As you sin, which you do and I do every day, what is so helpful to me is when I have sinned with sinful anger and when I'm brought back to my senses, I realize what is it about me now that is not walking in faith? Why am I acting, Holy Father, as if you are not sovereign, as if you don't care, and as if you don't even exist right now. That gets me so angry. That's what helps me go back again because everything, all of our sin, is rooted in unbelief. Believers who are believers and have faith, real saving faith, act in unbelief, okay? That's the reality. So how do we walk in faith? We tie all of our sinful actions back to, where am I missing it in my relationship with God, my relationship with this Word? And you do it as justified persons, not in order to get justified. So, we are going to be handing out the Lord's Supper, this glorious, ongoing communal and Christ's community of remembering that everything we talked about and for Abraham to be justified by faith or for any of us is all owing to Jesus purchasing it with his life.
our righteousness and his death our wrath put upon him and his resurrection for our justification. And so again, we will come to the table of the Lord in faith. Faith. Let it ignite our faith and our trust and our love in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a glorious, wonderful mercy. You did not spare your own son, but you gave him, and you delivered him up for us all. And thus, for every one of our futures, throughout the next few hours, weeks, months, or years, how will you not also providentially give to us everything that we could possibly need because we know nothing will ever be able to separate us from your love for us in your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen.